Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Satterwick. My guest today is an international foreign policy expert and has literally spent a lifetime researching, studying, working on, and writing about the importance of international government relationships, specifically the relationship between the United States and Russia. Dr. Michael McFall is the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, the Ken Olivier and Angela Nomayini Professor of International Studies in the Department of Political Science, and the Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He joined the faculty at Stanford University in 1995. Dr. Ball is also an international affairs analyst for NBC News and a columnist for the Washington Post. He served for five years in the Obama administration, first as special assistant to the president and senior director for Russian and Eurasian affairs at the National Security Council at the White House, and then as U.S. ambassador to the Russian Federation from 2012 to 2014. He's the author of several books, most recently, the New York Times bestseller, From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. His current research interests include American foreign policy, great power relations, the relationship between democracy and development. Dr. Fall was born and raised in Montana. He received his bachelor's in international relations and Slavic languages and his master's in Soviet and Eastern European studies from Stanford University. And as a Rhodes Scholar, he completed his doctorate in philosophy and international relations at Oxford University in 1991. Ambassador Michael McFall, welcome to Breaking Protocol. Sure. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you being here. But before we jump into the really deep end of our conversation today, I'd like for you to take us back a little bit to your high school days, back in Montana where you grew up, and how you developed such a significant interest in the former Soviet Union, and what prompted that interest ultimately that developed into a lifetime of academic focus? Well, that's fun to talk about that going all the way back. Um, it, it all happenstance. It was all chance. I uh, moved from Butte, Montana to Bozeman, Montana, my junior year in high school. And that probably doesn't mean much to you or your listeners because they're just B-towns in Montana, but pretty big change in my life. And uh, I was looking for an easy English credit. And my neighbor, my brand new neighbor said, take debate. Debate is the easiest way to get an English credit your junior year. So I signed up for the debate class. And the topic that year was how to improve U.S. trade policy around the world. And so I eventually had a debate partner and I eventually joined the debate team. And we ran a case, as they're called in debate, high school debate, on increasing trade to the Soviet Union by repealing something called the jackson Vanek Trade uh, Amendment to the 1974 Trade Act. Uh, and so that's where it was. Uh, it was. That's when I first started thinking about the Soviet Union. Uh, my debate partner, by the way, is uh, Senator Steve Daines. Uh, he's a, a Republican from Montana. So um, uh, we were a pretty good team, by the way. And it was in that time when, uh, you know, as a young kid in high school, uh, this is right in the beginning of the Reagan years, where tensions were heating up between our two countries. 
that I also became more politically interested in this and, and worried that we were going to blow up the planet because of this animosity. And so fall quarter of my freshman year, when I came to Stanford as a 17-year-old kid from Montana, I enrolled in two classes that really changed the trajectory of my career, my life. I didn't know it at the time, of course, but one was called Poli-Sci 35, How Nations Deal with Each Other. So, you know, how do states interact with each other? And the second was first-year Russian. And as a result of that, uh, I began to think more and more about this bilateral relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States. And eventually, uh, in my sophomore year, I took my first trip abroad ever. I'd never been abroad before to the evil empire, as Ronald Reagan called it back then, uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, and so that's that was the initial uh, spark of my interest in both international relations, but also the specific uh, relationship with uh, then the, the Soviet Union and now Russia. You know, it's interesting. In 2014, Russia invaded parts of eastern Ukraine and they annexed Crimea. They currently occupy the Georgian states of South Ossetia and Abkhazia, as well as the region of Transnistria and Moldova. Would you say that this is an accurate description of the current state of Russian aggression against sovereign states? And if not, how would you describe this aggression? Well, most certainly uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, the president of Russia, uh, has become increasingly more belligerent, first and foremost, to his neighbors, as you just described. But I would also say to the liberal democratic world more generally. Now, I also want to say that it, it wasn't always that case. Uh, I lived in the Soviet Union in 1983, but I also lived in the Soviet Union the year it collapsed in 1991 and spent quite a bit of time there in the early 90s, when back then the leadership of that country and society wanted to join the West and they wanted to build democratic institutions. And in many ways, that was the heyday of U.S.-Russian relations. We were closer together then than we had been any time for 100 years. But when Putin came into power in 2000, and especially when he came back to power as president in 2012, he moved Russia in a much more anti-democratic direction at home, and in turn, and I would say, in a much more anti-Western direction with respect to foreign policy. And the, you know, the real horrible punctuation point of that was in the list that you described when he annexed territory, you know, he annexed. Crimea in 2014. And even during the height of the Cold War, I want to remind your listeners, uh, annexation was not a thing that states did to each other. The Soviet Union was not annexing territory then. In many ways, we fought World War II to outlaw annexation. Uh, but it's back. And, and as a result of that, we're in this very tragic, in my view, conflictual relationship with Russia again. You know, the timing of the annexation of Crimea actually came right on the heels of your resignation as the U.S. ambassador to Russia. Did you have any insight that that was going to happen? Were you suspicious that that was going to happen? I mean, it doesn't seem like you just, that's something you execute overnight. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the day I left Moscow was the day that Putin uh, annexed Crimea, uh, literally the day. Uh, and so much so, it was such a horrible moment that when I landed here back in San Francisco and here my home, you know, I teach here at Stanford, I called back to the White House and State Department saying, maybe I should go back. And they're like, no, 
that we're not going to solve this problem at the ambassadorial level. And by the way, it's been stuck that way ever since. So that was good advice. But to your analytic question, it's a very important one. The answer is yes. Uh, was I worried that something like this was going to happen? I was. To remind everybody, in the fall of 2013, the president of Ukraine decided not to sign an accession agreement with the European Union. That triggered massive mobilization against his regime, uh, major protests on the streets, not, not only in Kiev, but especially in Kiev. And tragically, and it's on my mind because of the tragic events in our country, those demonstrations became violent in February 2014. Uh, the regime killed about 100 people, and eventually the regime fell, and Mr. Yanukovych fled uh, to Russia, where I believe he still resides to this day. In the initial moment when he fell and, and he left, it felt like the, de the Democrats, small D Democrats were taking over in Ukraine. And I remember I was actually uh, at the Sochi Olympics. I was representing part of our delegation there for the Winter Olympics. I remember my Blackberry blowing up with lots of, you know, uh, congratulatory statements that, oh, this is great. You know, another autocrat has fallen. This is a good day for democracy. Um, and I was happy to see Mr. Yanukovych go, but I was very nervous that there was going to be a new reaction from Putin. Uh, and sure enough, eventually there was. He waited till after the Olympics were over, of course. He didn't want to interrupt those events, but he struck back. And, and without question, in my mind, the annexation of Crimea was his payback to those that overthrew his ally. Mr. Yanukovych was his ally, after all, in Kiev. Yeah. Let's, if, if we can dig just a little deeper into this, uh, in... In my research and observation of around these activities that Putin uh, executed in Crimea, I've read a lot about the cultural diversity of the former Soviet Union and Russia. You know, it's the largest landmass in the world. It's nearly double the size of Canada, the U.S., China, and it is an extremely diverse country with nationalities, religions. Um, that influenced the daily lives of its people. I'm curious, Putin claims self-determination of these regions. Is there any accuracy to that self-determination? And how should we as Western democracies address that? Wow, Bob, big important question, hard, hard question. But let me let me take two or three bites at this apple. So the first bite is you said something very important, but I think a lot of Americans forget that Russia is a very diverse place. The Russian Federation is, right? 20% Muslim, dozens of ethnicities, dozens of uh, religious faiths, you know, rural urban divides, just like we have in our country. All of that is true. People are conservative, people are liberal. And, and, and you know, as ambassador, I got to travel a lot in Russia and, and experience that diversity. But that's very important thing to remember first. Second, remember when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, it left on the other side of its borders many ethnic Russians in Ukraine, in Kazakhstan, in uh, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, all over the place. Because, you know, when they were one country, people moved around. Those internal borders were, were kind of like the borders between American states. They, they weren't borders between independent states. And then they became independent. 
And that inside Russia fueled a movement of which Putin is a manifestation of, of that this was unjust, this was wrong. You know, we were better as the Soviet Union on this ethnic dimension that we need to recreate the Russian empire. Some political forces have been arguing that for a while. And then that gets to the very specific piece of Crimea. Crimea was part of the Russian empire. And it was only when Khrushchev, a Soviet leader uh, during the Soviet days, he was the one that transferred that piece of land from the Russian Republic to the Ukrainian Republic. But back then it didn't matter. It would be like the transfer of, you know, a piece of property from one part, one state to the next inside of the United States. It was all part of the Soviet Union. But that for many Russian nationalists, including Vladimir Putin, was, uh, you know, an unjust uh, uh, transfer of that property. Now, now the third bite at the apple, you can't begin to start unraveling those things because when you begin to start unraveling those things, including for our country, when do you stop pulling on the string? Where I live now in California, you know, this was not part of the United States of America a couple hundred years ago. And the way we acquired some of our territories, both from indigenous people and from other countries, you start pulling on those strings as to who is the real, where does sovereignty begin here where I live? That leads to a very messy can of worms and no legitimate, I don't think there's any legitimate claim that that Russia has to annex the the territory of Crimea, but that is not the way that many Russians perceive of of what happened in 2014. They believe that they are righting a wrong that Khrushchev did. And, you know, uh, again, I don't think it's right. I want to be very clear about that. I think that argument is wrong, but I think it's important for other people to understand, you know, what the argument is internally and why, therefore, it was so popular when Putin annexed Crimea. He went from 55% to 80%. So just to put a nail in this particular topic, is there any resolution that you see beyond the diplomatic circles to resolve the issue of Russian occupation of these territories and the annexation of Crimea? I don't, there's not a military solution for sure. And, you know, to, to, critics of the Obama administration, 2014, they said, oh, this is Obama's fault, at least Republicans did, you know, that, that Putin annexed Crimea. And, and as you rightly pointed out earlier, wasn't just the annexation of Crimea, it's also the, you know, the supporting of separatists in Eastern Ukraine as well. And to that, I would just remind people, well, what, you know, what was your plan for stopping that? Uh, you, you're going to send uh, American soldiers to Ukraine to stop that. I mean, that that was never a serious option. And I think we need to understand that that was not Obama's fault. Uh, that was Putin's fault. And when they, you know, others say, well, it's because he was weak on Syria and the red line and that, that created permissive conditions for Putin. I want to remind your listeners that that Putin also invaded Georgia in August 2008. Uh, and that's when George W. Bush was president. Uh, and he most certainly showed that he was willing to use force abroad in Afghanistan and Iraq, and yet that didn't deter Putin. So uh, I don't think there's not a military solution. I think in the long run, the solution is not unlike what led to the condition uniting Germany. 
which is to say, I think uh, the Ukrainians need to develop their economy, uh, develop their democracy, so that the GDP per capita rate in Ukraine is three or four times higher than the GDP per capita in Crimea or Eastern uh, Ukraine that's occupied by the Russians, that it's a democratic society, that it's integrated with the West. And that was a key contribution for reunification in Germany, uh, that people in East Germany saw that West Germans were living better. And eventually that helped to, to bring about unification and the collapse of communist regimes in uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, but that's a long, long process that, that won't happen overnight. In your book, From Cold War to Hot Peace, you talk about a time when you were in Russia as a student, you mentioned earlier, and your work with an organization called NDI, the National Democratic Institute. During this period, you sound rather optimistic uh, about the future of Russian democracy. And in retrospect, would you reflect and say maybe you were a bit naive uh, at the time? Or was the Western world's approach to democratic development incapacitated? How did we go so quickly? from a relationship with Russia to now calling each other enemies? Well, I did work for uh, the National Democratic Institute, which is, a, which is an American organization uh, that supports democratic uh, values and institutional development around the world. Uh, they work all over the world. Uh, I started working as a consultant for them in the fall of 1990, still when the Soviet Union existed. And then I went back after the Soviet Union collapsed, and then the summer of 1992 formally opened uh, their office in Moscow. And those were, for me, very, I would not use the word uh, naive, I would say euphoric times, because I am a small D-Democrat. I'm, you know, I'm a big D-Democrat in terms of the Democratic Party and, and many activities, but I'm most, more importantly, I'm a small D-Democrat. And, you know, my initial political activity was actually about apartheid South Africa, going back in my school days. And uh, having lived in the Soviet Union in the, the 80s, uh, it was very exciting for me to see the transition to democracy in that country and free and fair elections and the overthrow of communist totalitarian dictatorship. Uh, that was some of the most exciting months and years of my life to watch that. And uh, over time, I got to know uh, quite well, some of them I still know, uh, the Russians that did that. And by the way, those are the people that ended the Cold War. We Americans take way too much credit for what we did and what Ronald Reagan did. And, you know, because he gave a speech <laughs> uh, to say, tear down this wall, suddenly he did that. No, it was brave, brave Russians and Ukrainians and Georgians and Poles and Estonians. It was all together. But the democratic forces in the communist world, they're the ones that overthrew communism and then brought our countries closer together. And I, you know, remember and cherish those days that I played a small role in that. And I want to re remind everybody that when I opened that office, NDI, in the summer of 1992, we were there as the guests, the invited guests of the Russian government. We were not considered hostile to them. We were considered their allies. Because a, a lot of people say, oh, America's always imposing regime change abroad. And I want to be clear, no, we were the guests. We were not imposing anything. Uh, the Russians uh, in their parliaments and political parties at the time, they wanted to work with us in partnership. I think in retrospect, uh, you know, two things happened. 
that led to the tragic outcome now. One is mostly a Russia story, which is at the same time that they were trying to build democracy from scratch, they also were managing an economic depression that was three times as large as our economic depression in the 1930s. And they were managing the collapse of the empire. And the collapses of empire usually are very difficult things to happen. And so they were managing all three of those things simultaneously. And that just was a really bad place to try to build democracy from. And so for most Russians living in, in a, you know, in the 19, through the 1990s, they associate the word with democracy with economic depression and lawlessness and, and the, the, the loss of their empire. Nobody should be surprised that, that it had a negative connotation for Russians, right? So that, that's, a, that's an internal Russia story. But there is, in the margins, an American story here, too. We did not do enough, in my view, to help that transition, that economic transition and that, uh, that uh, democratic transition. You know, if you remember a similar moment in history, after World War II, we did a ton to help Germany and Italy and Japan and other countries, France, uh, many countries, to recover from that horrific war. And we, you know, under the Marshall Plan, we gave huge resources to try to help rebuild those societies. We did nothing of the, that scale after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And we didn't because we thought, you know, it was the end of history, as my colleague Frank Fukuyama wrote. We thought democracy had won. There was no challengers here. And everybody was gradually going to work, work their way through it. And I think that was a mistake. I think had we leaned in more heavily and helped them, democracy might have had a better chance. Well, let's fast forward here to your time when you returned to Russia as the United States ambassador. Breaking and a lot of protocol. Break it. Did you break a lot? We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. I'm curious, though, while you were serving as the U.S. ambassador in Russia, were you ever provided with a sense of optimism that the policies the administration was pursuing at the time would prove to be fruitful? No, I'm being very honest with you. You know, I was I was cautiously optimistic when I worked at the White House. And remember, we had a new president, President Obama. They had a new president too, President Medvedev. I think a lot of people forget that at the beginning of the Obama administration, they had a new president and he was not from the KGB. Uh, he was a decade younger than Putin. He was a lawyer and he wanted to reset relations with the United States. Uh, we had a willing partner in Medvedev. And for about three or four years, we did a lot of great things together. We signed a new START treaty getting rid of 30% of the nuclear weapons in the world. We opened supply routes to our troops in Afghanistan through Russia. We uh, together put the most comprehensive sanctions regime against Iran ever. We did that with Russia. And that was the predicate for the Iran nuclear deal that we negotiated several years later with Russia. We got Russia into the WTO. And, and I, I won't go through the whole list. By the book. Thanks for advertising it, Bob. It's all sure. in there. but. Um, and at the height of that, by the way, it's important to remember that over 60% of Russians had a positive view of the United States of America, and about 55% of Americans had a positive view of Russia. That was two years into the Obama term. And by the way, those were very exciting times to be traveling around the world with Barack Obama and working on this set of issues. 
but two things changed before I got I got there as ambassador. One, Russia had a parliamentary election that was stolen, you know, five, seven percent falsified, kind of normal levels of falsification. But this time around, the Russian opposition, because they had smartphones, could document it. And then because of social media, they spun it around the internet. And first 500, then 5,000, and eventually 200,000 people came out to protest the falsified elections and threaten the Putin regime. Because at that time, Putin was uh, um, uh, running for president. He was coming back as president. And that that mobilization against Putin made him super paranoid about the United States. And then second, Putin. Uh, he ran for re-election in uh, the spring of 2012. I arrived during that presidential election in January 2012. And I'd gotten to know both Putin and uh, Medvedev in my time at the White House. Actually, I knew Putin from you know, the spring of 1991 when I was working at NDI. I first met him. But uh, it was very clear to me, even before I got on the plane to assume my responsibilities as ambassador, that the reset ended when Putin came back because he had a different mind view. He, he saw us as the enemy. He saw us as trying to undermine his regime. And he blamed Obama. He blamed Clinton. And when I arrived, he blamed me for seeking to foment revolution against his regime. And so- well, if I recall, he actually- basically called you a spy with devious intentions. Correct. I was giving aid directly to the opposition. Uh, you know, and I want to be clear because we were not doing that. I want to make sure your listeners know, and I write about it in detail in my book, we were not doing that. Of course, we were not doing that. But there's a piece of Putin's complaint that is true because were we standing up for free and fair elections? We were. Were we criticizing anti-democratic policies of his government? We were. And so that is, that's the, the nature of this problem, that there, you know, he was so paranoid about us that you know, it made it very difficult to cooperate with him. So you know, the United States and its allies often use terms, use the term sanctions um, as an effective measure in response to international military action. Uh, we have applied sanctions at this time to Russia, Putin's Russia. Do you feel that these sanctions that currently apply to Russia are having any productive influence in the relationship? Depends on how you define productive uh, influence on the relationship. If you're Vladimir Putin, of course, you answer that question, no. And you're saying, and they are saying in the transition now, you know, this has been very unproductive. But for me, I would say two things. One is, people always talk about sanctions. Is it having an effect? And I want to back up before you get to the effect. I strongly believe that sometimes you have to take actions because they're the right thing to do. Not whether it's a good effect or a bad effect, but because there was something wrong that was done and you have to sanction bad behavior. Um, it's on my mind because of the impeachment trial uh, going on in America. Uh, there was something wrong that was done uh, and just to say, well, in the interest of getting along and we got to cooperate, let's just not do that. I strongly disagree with that. If there's a crime, there has to be a punishment. And in this case, uh, uh, Putin violated one of the most important commandments of international relations in the 21st century. Thou shall not 
annex the territory of thy neighbor. You know, if I were writing the Ten Commandments of, of behavior <laughs> states, that's going to rank probably, you know, two or three on my list. You know, don't start a nuclear war. But maybe number two is don't annex territory. And so I, I just strongly believe that Obama had to respond to that activity with something. That's, for, that's the first point. The second point, in terms of effect, I think the data is pretty overwhelming that it, uh, uh, the sanctions have hurt the Russian economy and has had that negative effect. The problem is it's having that negative effect for society as a whole and companies, but in a non-democratic society. So the, the, you know, the, the, the people that are being affected by it, they can't support an alternative candidate to say, yes, these are bad for us. Let's, let's elect a, a new leader. So it takes a lot longer for them to have a change in Putin's behavior. So that has not happened. Putin has not changed his behavior as a result of sanctions. But the debate internally in Russia continues to this day. I just saw uh, you know, one of the richest men in Russia, uh, Mr. Mordashov is his name. He's a, he runs a steel company. And very politely, because you can't criticize Putin directly in that society, you know, he is saying that international isolation is bad for Russia. And that debate has been churning in Russia for years now. And that, you know, I think, you know, it's having an effect uh, in those terms. Uh, and then finally, I would say, if they're not having an effect, why is Putin trying so desperately to always uh, lift the sanctions? I mean, you know, I mean, he's been talking about it for years that we need to lift sanctions. That suggests that they are having an effect. Well, let's talk about Donald Trump for a minute, although I don't like to give him a lot of airtime. But his obsession with Vladimir Putin can be described in some circles as a global phenomenon. You mentioned in, your, in a presentation that you gave at MIT that Putin is a zero-sum guy. I would dare say that Donald Trump is a zero-sum guy. I would also convey that it's fair to say that zero-sum doesn't work in foreign policy. So how would you describe Trump's relationship with Putin and how has his approach to the bilateral relationship benefited or damaged global democracy? Well, uh, Mr. Trump came into office, well, actually well before then as a candidate, promising and pledging that he wanted to get along with Putin. You know, he talked about lifting sanctions. He even thought he said he'd look into recognizing Crimea as part of Russia and he was animated, in my view, by a notion that he just wanted to get along with Putin. And I want to be clear, I'm not against uh, leaders getting along. It's better than if they don't. But Trump always confused men's means and ends. A rapport with a leader abroad, and I would say this about our allies as well as our competitors, is a means to accomplishing something that's good for the American people. Uh, it's not an end into itself. Just having a nice meeting with Putin, uh, unless it accomplished something, is, you know, why, why do I care about that? And I would say Trump made a giant mistake in that he always thought that just getting along with Putin was the goal of his foreign policy. And at the end of the day, after four years, they literally got nothing done, zero. I can't think of a, hesitating for a moment, but I can't think of a single concrete positive outcome for the American people that resulted as a result of his happy talk vis-a-vis -vis Putin. So I, I think that's a pretty failed policy. But in addition, there, there are negative consequences of embracing Putin 
to other parts of our foreign policy. And, and I would say, first and foremost, we lost our credibility as the leader of the free world by embracing this autocrat. And so that's had damage to other bilateral relationships as well. Has there been any U.S. administration that you have studied or observed that has been successful in influencing Putin to cooperate with the U.S. on U.S. terms? And what advice would you provide the incoming Biden administration to effectively improve U.S.-Russia relationship? So here's what I would say. The most cooperative period with Putin as president in U.S.-Russian relations was right after September 11th. And uh, on that horrible day, uh, that was an attack, a terrorist attacked us who had allegiances with terrorists who had attacked Russia. And so he reached out to President Bush. And for a while, the two of those leaders, because they had a common enemy, pursued the global war on terrorism together. And that was a very cooperative period. And Putin even helped us, you know, in terms of opening bases in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. It fell apart for the reasons we already talked about. It fell apart when Putin became paranoid about the United States allegedly supporting democratic revolutions against autocratic regimes, first in Georgia in 2003, and then in Ukraine in 2004. And that paranoia, which began back then, only got grew and grew and grew over the years, and I think really reached an inflection point in 2011, and we've never been able to cooperate with him since. And therefore, that leads me to, you know, what should President Biden do? Uh, you know, I was in their last meeting, actually, uh, together back in 2011, uh, Vice President Biden. Uh, we met with Prime Minister Putin. So back then, they both had different jobs. And, you know, I think the approach that Biden took then is probably sound advice today, which is on some issues, the United States and Russia have common interests, and we should pursue those and we should realize those. On arms control, for instance, we're the two nuclear superpowers in the world. We should continue to negotiate. We should uh, prolong the New START treaty right away and then continue to negotiate to reduce the number of nuclear weapons in the world. That's good for Russia. That's good for the United States. On pandemics, we should cooperate. On climate change, we should cooperate. And at the same time, we need to contain the belligerent actions of Putin at the same time. And that means shoring up NATO. That means supporting Ukraine. Uh, that means being uh, investing more in cybersecurity to contain uh, Putin's Russia. And then third, I believe uh, President Biden and his new team should uh, to a much greater extent than uh, Mr. Trump did, uh, speak up for democracy and human rights uh, around the world globally, but also in Russia. And I think, you know, that's a delicate balancing act to do all three of those things at the same time. But I, I think that's the right approach. So to wrap up today, keeping with the theme of my podcast here, Breaking Protocol, which is something in the world of diplomacy is probably a really ugly term. Uh, have you ever broken protocol? Well, yeah, I broke protocol a lot, uh, you know, um, <laughs> and uh, I'll let others judge good things and bad things from that. You know, I was, you know, I was a political appointee, so um, I looked at things very differently. And I'm also a professor, so I looked at things very differently as a result of that. So, 
there were lots of stories I could tell about that, about changing the way I ran country team. And uh, we had a professor seminar at the embassy because I wanted to get everybody involved in talking about these issues and not just my top team. And I wanted Russians to be part of that, not just the Americans. But I'm going to leave you with a very vivid memory I, I, I have about breaking protocol that has not to do with being a professor or a White House official. It has to do with being uh, the son of a country Western musician from Montana. So we arrived in Moscow, uh, me and my family, and lived in this beautiful house, Spaso House. And your listeners should go do a tour. Wonderful, beautiful place. And the public affairs folks, you have to plan that, as you know well, that you have to plan that stuff well in advance. And as I was looking at some of our first events, one of the, the very first concert that was sponsored to be hosted by me at Spaso House, uh, and by the way, Spaso House was so big that we had a whole uh, ballroom that we could seat 600 people in. My kids used to play uh, badminton in there uh, during the cold days in Moscow, but was a band from Montana. Couldn't believe it. And I was very excited that this was scheduled before me and they were, they were a country band. And I went down that day to look at how the arrangements were uh, working out. And I noticed that uh, the chairs were very close to the bandstand uh, and there's no place for people to dance. And I went to my protocol officer uh, for the house and uh, I said to her, Olga, like, like, where's the dance floor? Uh, and she looked at me very strangely <laughs> and she said, Mr. Ambassador, we don't dance at concerts uh, at Spaso House. Um, uh, some very serious, important people will be coming to this concert tonight. And I said, yeah, you know, okay, uh, I understand. But, you know, where I'm from uh, in Montana, uh, for you to sit on your hands for an entire uh, concert for this kind of band, that's an insult to the band. And, and just so you know, my father was a country Western musician for 30 years. Uh, there was no way you could insult him more than to sit there and listen to him uh, for four hours on your hands uh, and not get up and dance. Sure. So we went back and forth and, and uh, you know, we eventually compromised. She took out like three rows of chairs and I said, okay, we'll just see how things go. And, you know, so they, they, they started their uh, music and nobody was dancing, of course. And eventually I just said to my wife, all right, we got to... We got we to gotta go for it here. We got to see what happens. So we got up. We did the two-step. I don't do the two-step well, but I, I know how to do the two-step. And for a while there, it was just the two of us, you know, with 400 people staring at us. And then one more American got up, uh, bless his soul. And when he got up, then 200 people got up. And just the place just got raucous. And Russians don't know how to do the two-step that well. But man, did they have a good time. And, uh, you know, protocol was broken in a very dramatic way. But, but, you know, at a time when there was a lot of tension in U.S.-Russian relations, this was a great moment to bond over things like music and dance. And, and we most certainly did. And that was the first concert. And, but Spasso House after that became known as a place that we're going to have a good time we're going to check our differences at the door about, you know, Syria and arms control. Uh, and we're going to just come together as fellow human beings. Ambassador McFall, thank you for joining us today on Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowick. And thank all of you for listening today. 
Ambassador McFall's book, From Cold War to Hot Peace, An American Ambassador in Putin's Russia, is available for purchase wherever you buy your books. And if you enjoyed our conversation, please click and subscribe for notification of future episodes. If you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer or for download to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Have a beautiful day and many blessings.